0: Chapter Fifteen of Colonel Quaritch V.C. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Colonel Quaritch V.C. by H. Rider Haggard. Chapter Fifteen: The Happy Days. This is a troubling world enough. But thanks to the mitigating fate which now and again interferes to our advantage, there do come to most of us times and periods of our existence which, if they do not quite fulfil all the conditions of our ideal happiness, yet go near enough to that end to permit in after days of our imagining that they did so. I say to most of us, but in doing so I allude chiefly to those classes commonly known as the upper, by which is understood those who have enough bread to put into their mouths and clothes to warm them. Those, too, who are not the present subjects of remorseless and hideous ailments, who are not daily agonized by the sight of their famished offspring, who are not doomed to beat out their lives against the madhouse bars, or to see their hearts beloved and their most cherished hope "'whither toward that cold space from whence no message comes? "'For such unfortunates, and for their million-numbered kin upon the globe, "'the victims of war, famine, slave-trade, oppression, usury, overpopulation, "'and the curse of competition, the rays of light must be few indeed, "'few and far between, only just enough to save them from utter hopelessness. "'And even to the favoured ones, the well-warmed and well-fed, who are to a great extent lifted by fortune or by their native strength and wit above the degradations of the world. This light of happiness is but as the gleam of stars, uncertain, fitful, and continually lost in clouds. Only the utterly selfish or the utterly ignorant can be happy with the happiness of savages or children, however prosperous their own affairs, for to the rest, those who think and have hearts to feel, and imagination to realize, and a redeeming human sympathy to be touched, the mere weight of the world's misery pressing round them like an atmosphere, the mere echoes of the groans of the dying and the cries of the children, are sufficient, and more than sufficient, to dull, aye, to destroy the promise of their joys. But still, even to this finer sort, there do come rare periods of almost complete happiness, little summers in the tempestuous climate of our years, green-fringed wells of water in our desert, pure northern lights breaking in upon our gloom, and, strange as it may seem, these breadths of happy days, when these old questions cease to torment, and a man can trust in providence, and without one qualifying thought, bless the day that he was born, are very frequently connected with the passion that is known as love that mysterious symbol of our double nature that strange tree of life which with its roots sucking their strength from the dust-heap of humanity yet springs aloft above our highest level and bears its blooms in the very face of heaven why it is and what it means we shall never know for certain but it does suggest itself that as the greatest terror of our being lies in the utter loneliness the unspeakable identity and unchanging self-completeness of every living soul, so the greatest hope and the intensest natural yearning of our hearts go out toward that passion which in its fire heats has the strength, if only for a little while, to melt down the barriers of our individuality and to give to the soul something of the power for which it yearns of losing its sense of solitude in converse with its kind for alone we are from infancy to death we for the most part grow not nearer together but rather wider apart with the widening years where go the sympathies between the parent and the child and where is the close old love of brother for his brother the invisible fates are continually wrapping us round and round with the widening sheets of our solitude and none may know our hearts save he who made it we are set upon the world as the stars are set upon the sky and though in following our faded orbits we pass and repass and each shines out on each yet are we the same lonely lights rolling along obedient to laws we cannot understand through those great spaces of which none may mark the limit only as says the poet in words of truth and beauty only but this is rare when a beloved hand is laid in ours, when, jaded with the rush and glare of the interminable hours, our eyes can in another eyes read clear, when our world-deafened ear is by the tones of a loved one caressed, a bolt is shot back somewhere in our breast, and a lost pulse of feeling stirs again, and what we mean we say, and what we would we know. And then who thinks he knows the hills where his life rose, and the sea whereunto it goes. Some such Indian summer of delight and forgetfulness of trouble and the tragic conditions of our days was now opening to Harold Quaritch and Ida de la Mole. Every day, or almost every day, they met and went upon their painting expeditions and argued the point of the validity, or otherwise, of the Impressionist doctrines of art. Not that of all this painting came anything very wonderful although in the evening the colonel in the silence of his chamber would take out his canvas and contemplate their rigid proportions with singular pride and satisfaction it was a little weakness of his to think that he could paint and one of which he was somewhat tenacious he was like many another a man who could do a number of things exceedingly well and one thing very badly and yet have more faith in that one bad thing than in all the good and still, strange to say, although he affected to believe so firmly in his own style of art, and hold Ida's in such cheap regard, it was a little painting of the latter's that was most dear to him, and which was most often put upon his easel for purposes of solitary admiration. It was one of those very Impressionist productions that faded away in the distance, and was full of soft grey tints such as his soul loathed, and had a tree with a bolt of brown colour on it, and altogether, though, as a matter of fact, a clever thing enough, from his point of view of art utterly anathema. This little picture, in oils, faintly shadowed out himself sitting at his easel, working in the soft grey of the autumn evening, and Ida had painted it and given it to him, and that was why he admired it so much for, so to speak, our friend the colonel was going, going fast, sinking out of sight of his former self into the depths of the love that possessed his soul. He was a very simple-minded and pure man, strange as it may appear, since that first unhappy business of his youth, of which he had never been heard to speak, no living woman had been anything to him. Therefore, instead of becoming further vulgarized and hardened by association with all the odds and ends of womankind, that a man, travelling about the globe, comes in contact with, generally, not greatly to his improvement. His faith had had time to grow up stronger even than before, and he once more looked upon woman as a young man looks before he has had experience of the world, as a being to be venerated and almost worshipped, as something better, brighter, purer than himself, hardly to be won, and when one to be worn like a jewel prized at once for value and for beauty now this is a dangerous state of mind for a man of three or four and forty to fall into because it is a soft state and this is a world in which the softest are apt to get the worst of it and at four and forty a man of course should be hard enough to get the better of other people as indeed he generally is when harold quaritch after that long interval of years first set his eyes upon ida's face he felt a curious change come over him all the vague ideas and more or less poetical aspirations which for five long years had gathered themselves round about that memory took shape and form and though as yet he would not quite confess it in his heart he knew that he loved her And, as the days went on, and he came to know her better, he grew to love her more and more, till at last his whole heart went out toward his late-found treasure, and she grew to be more than life to him, more than aught had been or could be. Blue and happy were those days, which they spent in painting and talking as they wandered about the Honham Castle grounds. By degrees, Ida's slight but perceptible hardness of manner wore away, and she stood out what she was, one of the sweetest and most natural women in England, and with it all, a woman having brains and force of character. Soon he discovered that her life had been anything but an easy one. The constant anxiety about money and her father's affairs had worn her down and hardened her, till, as she said, she began to feel as though she had no heart left. Then, too, he heard all her trouble about her dead and only brother James. How dearly she had loved him, and what a sore trouble he had been with his extravagant ways and his continual demands for money, which had to be met somehow or other. At last came the crushing blow of his death, and with it the certainty of the extinction of the male line of the Dillamoles. And she said that for a while she had believed her father would never hold up his head again, but his vitality was equal to the shock, and after a while the debts began to come in, which, although he was not legally bound to do so, her father would insist upon meeting to the last farthing, for the honour of the family, and out of respect for his son's memory. And there was more trouble about money that had gone on and on, always getting worse as the agricultural depression deepened, till things had reached their present position." All this she told him bit by bit, keeping back from him only the last development of the drama and the part that Edward Cossey had played in it. And, sad enough, it made him to think of that ancient house of de la Mole vanishing into the night of ruin. Also she told him something of her own life, how companionless it had been since her brother went into the army, for she had no real friends about Honham and not even an acquaintance of her own tastes, which, without being gushingly so, were decidedly artistic and intellectual. I should have wished, she said, to try to do something in the world. I dare say I should have failed, for I know that very few women meet with success, which is worth having. But still, I should have liked to try, for I am not afraid of work, but the current of my life is against it, the only thing that is open to me is to strive and make both ends meet upon an income which is already growing smaller and to save my father poor dear from as much worry as i can don't think that i am complaining she went on hurriedly or that i want to rush into pleasure-seeking because i do not a little of that goes a long way with me besides i know that i have many things to be thankful for few women have such a kind father as mine though we do quarrel at times of course we cannot have everything our own way in this world and i dare say that i do not make the best of things still at times it does seem a little hard that i should be forced to lead such a narrow life just when i feel that i could work in a wide one harold looked up at her face and saw that a tear was gathering in her dark eyes and in his heart he registered a vow that if by any means it ever lay within his power to improve her lot, he would give everything he had to do it. But all he said was, "'Don't be downhearted, Miss Delamore. Things change in a wonderful way, and often they mend when they look worst. You know,' he went on a little nervously, "'I am an old-fashioned sort of individual, and I believe in providence, and all that sort of thing, you see.' and that matters generally come pretty well straight in the long run if people deserve it. Ida shook her head a little doubtfully and sighed. Perhaps, she said, but I suppose that we do not deserve it. Anyhow, our good fortune is a long while coming. And the conversation dropped. Still, her friend's strong belief in the efficacy of Providence and generally his masculine sturdiness did cheer her up considerably. Even the strongest women, if they have any element that can be called feminine left in them, want somebody of the other sex to lean on, and she was no exception to the rule. Besides, if Ida's society had charms for Colonel Quaritch, his society had almost if not quite as much charm for her. It may be remembered that on the night when they first met she had spoken to herself of him as the kind of man whom she would like to marry. The thought was a passing one, and it may be safely said that she had not since entertained any serious idea of marriage in connection with Colonel Quaritch. The only person there seemed to be the slightest probability of her marrying was Edward Cossey, and the mere thought of this was enough to make the whole idea of matrimony repugnant to her. But, notwithstanding, day by day she found Harold Quaritch's society more congenial herself by nature and also to a certain degree by education a cultured woman she rejoiced to find in him an entirely kindred spirit for beneath his somewhat rugged and unpromising exterior harold quaritch hid a vein of considerable richness few of those who associated with him would have believed that the man had a side to his nature which was almost poetic or that he was a ripe and finished scholar and what is more, not devoid of a certain dry humour. Then he had travelled far, and seen much of men and manners, gathering up all sorts of quaint odds and ends of information. But perhaps, rather than these accomplishments, it was the man's transparent honesty and simple-mindedness, his love for what is true and noble, and his contempt of what is mean and base, which, unwittingly peeping out through his conversation, "'attracted her more than all the rest. "'Ida was no more a young girl "'to be caught by a handsome face "'or dazzled by a superficial show of mind. "'She was a thoughtful, ripened woman, "'quick to perceive, "'and with the rare talent of judgment, "'wherewith to weigh the proceeds of her perception. "'In plain middle-aged Colonel Quaritch "'she found a very perfect gentleman "'and valued him accordingly. "'And so day grew into day.' through that lovely autumn-tide. Edward Cossey was away in London, quest had ceased from troubling, and journeying together through the sweet shadows of companionship, by slow but sure degrees, they drew near to the sunlit plain of love. For it is not common, indeed it is so uncommon, as to be almost impossible, that a man and woman, between whom there stands no natural impediment, can halt for very long in those shadowed ways." There is, throughout all nature, an impulse that pushes ever onwards towards completion, and from completion to fruition. Liking leads to sympathy, sympathy points the path to love, and love demands its own. This is the order of affairs, and down its well-trodden road these two were quickly travelling. George saw the wily of it, and winked his eye with solemn meaning. The squire also saw something of it, not being wanting in the knowledge of the world, and after much cogitation and many solitary walks, elected to leave matters alone for the present. He liked Colonel Quaritch, and thought that it would be a good thing for Ida to get married, though the idea of parting from her troubled his heart sorely. Whether or no it would be desirable from his point of view that she should marry the colonel was a matter on which he had not as yet fully made up his mind. Sometimes he thought it would, and sometimes he thought the reverse. Then at times, vague ideas suggested by Edward Cossey's behavior about the loan would come to puzzle him. But at present, he was so much in the dark that he could come to no absolute decision. So with unaccustomed wisdom, for so headstrong and precipitate a man, he determined to refrain from interference, and for a while at any rate, Allow events to take their natural course. End of chapter 15